You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. I know you're waiting for our tagline, 40 years or of. It's coming. First, if you own a retail business and accept credit cards, your customers are getting points, miles, and all sorts of rewards every time they use their card, and you're paying the price. That's why NRS Pay, a product of National Retail Solutions, a division of the IDT Corporation, offers its cash discount program, FeeBuster. You can start accepting credit cards for free. If your business processes over $18,000 a month, you pay no monthly fee and $0 out of your pocket for transaction. This means you, as a retailer, can enjoy the benefits of accepting plastic and your customers still get those crucial miles they crave and need. NRS Pay FeeBuster provides every client with a free credit card reader with no long-term contract, no early termination fee, cancel anytime without a penalty. I'm personally familiar with this company, and they truly stand by their product, and they'll help you with live, stateside-based customer service on any issue or question. Visit nrspay.com or call 833-289-2767 to learn more about NRS Pay and the fantastically fair fee buster. And now, Emeritus Rex. 40 years or of, 75 years of Medina. This is Emeritus Rex with Rabbi Reuben Yeshua Pupko. Yes, 75 years. We celebrate Yom Atzimut. And Rabbi Pupko, tell us about the exciting events in Montreal today on Yom Atzimut first. Well, it's been a week-long observance, really, in many ways, or at least a few days. Uh, Monday night began uh, Yom HaZikaron. There was a community gathering marking Memorial Day for fallen Israeli soldiers and victims of terror. That was a very meaningful uh, event. Families who had lost were in attendance. And uh, it was a day to uh, to remember uh, the sacrifices made by a heroic group of young men and women in defense of uh, the state of Israel. This year was held at the Federation Building in the uh, mm-hmm. auditorium there. Uh, last night at the Kolotor Mitzion, we had the uh, an event which we have every year, which is the transition moment between Yom HaZikaron and Yom HaZimut with the appropriate filot and prayer and song after. It was very nice. And this morning, the community gathered downtown Montreal. Several thousand Jews gathered to celebrate Israel's Independence Day. Does downtown Montreal still have uh, a Jewish presence? I don't know if it ever did. Uh, <laughs> well, it, it did. In the not. old days, in the old days, they had shuls there and everything. They were different. No, there, I mean, there's no real. Pre- I mean, many Jews work downtown, but yes, there's a Jewish presence. No. So why did they decide? I understand the Federation Building. Why did they decide to have this event? Was it to show, you know, the rest of it's the to show the flag, literally and figuratively. Uh-huh. To show the other people who are working in downtown Montreal right. that something significant is happening today. Right, exactly. It was uh, it's an important moment of communal unity, especially coming after or in the midst of uh, di- uh, you know public discord on display for all because of the political dispute in Israel. It was important to show uh, a you know a sh- a important show of unity behind and mm-hmm. support of Israel. The two daughters and the mother of in the D family, uh, their stories are you know, so tragic, and they seem to have been such incredible people, such contributors. Has that struck a chord in your absolutely I mean, as well? The, uh, the terror of the past several months, you know, that happened in too many places where 
Tel Aviv and Yerushalayim, near Yericho and other places. And uh, listen, it's devastating. And, uh, and to see the families conduct themselves with such dignity. You know, unfortunately, we all need a hook. And, and, the, and the idea of a couple that immigrated in their prime of life or whatever age that was, who spoke English, who were Anglos, who, who, who gave yeah, sure. up. And it certainly helps the access to the pain. Absolutely. Right. You know, it was a similar, we've talked about this on our platform before on our, on our program, when we've talked about the Harnoff killings that, you know, many of the American emigres that were killed there, it, it, it resonates with us. And we could say that could be you, yes. that the, the families come out instead of being in a cocoon and they speak about love, sacrifice, support the state, you know, which is, you know, incredible that after their losses, sometimes you, you almost feel that these, these husbands like Mr. D and some of these others, they are like the, they become the national menachemim to everyone else. You know, it, it's like, we don't, we, they don't, they don't even let themselves be considered poor right. Mr. D who lost his beautiful daughters and wife. He actually gets up there and, 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 and proclaims. It's an inspiring, uh, image of, uh, of the Jewish people, of connectedness to the Jewish people, of responsibility for Claudia Yisrael, and, and a real understanding of our place in history. It's really, uh, no, these are remarkable people. Haaretz, of course, will tell you that this was a Yomatz Ma'ut and a Yomazi Karon that was different than any other one. The, the country's coming apart. Prominent people did not want to take part in the torch lighting ceremony. Uh, people who came to uh, cemeteries, were upset uh, about and, and connecting the loss of their children and loved ones to a government that they hated, as if this year's Yom Atzmut and Yom Zikaron was somehow horribly tinged with the ugliness of the government. Now, I did my own little research, not only your warning that you gave me earlier this morning, I just I, I had two conversations today. One of them was with my good friend who drove from Ashkelon, to a kibbutz called Kibbutz Nirim, which is very close to Gaza. And then my son, my I have two sons in Eretz Yisrael, one of them lives in Kiryat Gat. Neither of them said that they noticed an iota of difference in terms of what was going on. In fact, let me just add one another interesting thing that, that wasn't clear to me. Many, because Yom HaZikaron is only a limited time, many people use Yom HaTzma'ut to go to the cemeteries. Yes. Right. I, and he told me that as my friend Nussan, who was driving down to Nirim, he said he drove past a number of Leolenu cemeteries and they were full of people and there was no sense of. No, there isn't. It's, 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 um, listen, there's no question that there's been a high degree of political uh, argumentation over the last few months, large demonstrations against government policy, but. All that is set aside uh, on Yom Azikaron and Yom Atzimut, and overwhelmingly, with a few po- with a few exceptions, um, overwhelmingly, people celebrated the way they always do. I want to share with you um, a snippet of something I read in the Mizrahi magazine, which I'm sure you have in your synagogue as well. Daron Perez, who I think is one of the uh, heads of the uh, of that magazine, quoted in a essay by he quoted Nasano Ellison that he did a, an interesting chap, the year 75. And we talked last week, of course, about 80, what 80 meant. 75 years after David HaMelech's beginning of his reign, that's when you have the break between Rehovam 
and Yeruvim, and the split between Malchus Yisrael and Malchus based Ovid. 75 years after the Chashmanoyim's victory, you have Yochanan and Aristobulus, and again, you have a sort of a civil war. And then he was saying, now it's 75 years of an independent government. Similarly, he says you have three periods. You have the period of the uh, of the founders, the you have the period of the the miyastim, the period of the bonim, people who built on that. And he says once you get around this time, seventy three, seventy four, seventy five, then you have the machrivin. Did you did you see that insight? Yeah, as well? I saw that actually. But hey, listen, we all have to hope and pray he's wrong, and that history is we're not prisoners to it to that to that history. But it is certainly a cautionary note. That means that for both sides of the political divide in Israel. Not to, not to try to go so far as to provoke the other side and not to condemn the government in ways which delegitimizes it. I, I, I would also add to that, you know, to is, you know, I mentioned to you off pod that I sort of tongue in cheek referenced Lincoln's Gettysburg address in referring to our last week's discussion. Right. We all know that 75 years approximately after the found, after the country was founded, we have again in America too, the, the strain had developed to a point of beats of of the civil war drums were already there. So I, I, I don't, I think he's sensing something that once you have, you take away the intense patriotism and the, Let's call it in Hebrew, the great Messiras Nefesh and the excitement of building. Then you have this third generation, which didn't do either of those things. And like the, the worst part of their nature start to come out. Many people in Israel today take the existence of a Jewish state for granted, not understanding how fragile and vulnerable is the realized dream of sovereignty restored. And therefore they feel that they can engage in a destructive discourse that doesn't threaten the foundations of the state. But I think we're, if, if after this period of calm around Yom Zigorn Yom Asmut comes to an end and the issue comes to the fore again, I really hope both sides have learned something. You know, the government should learn that, you know, to fasta marubalo to fasta, you're not going to get everything you want. And for the good of the country, you have to pare back some elements of the judicial reform. And the other side stops speaking in apocalyptic terms about what the government's proposing. Malcontents have a very large megaphone and they have many allies to spread this idea. But the, the average Israeli and the percentage might be even as high as 65 to 80 percent really isn't necessarily out there uh, thinking that everything is unraveling and coming apart. But, Listen, the, the last few months have hurt Israel a lot, as internally and externally, and um, and somebody has to have the courage to compromise and the courage to move forward. I noted that there were some sort of olive branches that were proffered by even Haredim in terms of. Listen, the Haredim are much smarter than the religious Zionists here. The Haredim understands that even if they win this, they end up losing. Because they have illegitimized the right to the point where the left will get back in power and they're going to be completely on the outside looking in. So I saw a number of Haredi representatives came to certain Yom Azikaron celebrations yes. and were rebuffed. But the fact was they were willing to do something, which even two years ago when we talked about this subject, it was like, what, you're not going to do that? 
it, it looks like somebody whispered into uh, the Ger, whoever that representative is, you should show up at the Yom Azikaron. You should come there with a, a, a wreath and do something. And I saw they tried to do it, which I think is a good sign. Listen, listen, religious anti-Zionism is a heresy. Uh, it's a heresy which, uh, it's almost like Shtevashuyas. They believe there was Hashkacha Pratis in the Holocaust. The Germans murdered six million Jews as an agent of divine retribution for the sin of Zionism, but somehow the creation of the state of Israel is not a divine act. To believe that Hashkacha Pratis only exists when Jews die, but not when Jews create a sovereign Jewish state, is a heresy. And uh, the heresy of religious anti-Zionism hopefully is losing steam. I just came back from the Israel Rally downtown Montreal. There were four Cretans on the other side in Hasidic garb, you know, with signs up against Israel. And uh, that's a heresy. That is a denial of Hashkacha Pratis. That's a denial of the divine role in history. And uh, and it has to be said, you know, proclaimed for what it is. It's kfira. To be an anti-Zionist is to be a kaifa. Well, look, Naturi Karta, I think, is in most everyone's mind beyond the pale. They dress like Hasidim, yes, garb, but they are they do not have the spirit and, and idealism or attitudes of most Hasidic people. I have to tell you, though, by the way, uh, between me and you and between everyone who's listening to the vast <laughs> audience, that that there was an Aturi Kartanik that was welcomed every Shabbos in the Mir Yeshiva when I was learning there. And, you know, that was Moshe Hirsch. Uh, and Moshe Hirsch was an American who dressed like a Toldus Adenik. I encountered him on Shabbos afternoon. And I said, no, Vesmachman, Vesmachman, Shalom, Good Shabbos. And of course he says, it's all right, you know, I probably speak English as well as you do. And it turns out, of course, he was an American fellow um, who loved hanging around the mirror. Uh, he dressed, like I said, with Toldus Aaron. And he sort of like, you know, the guy in the in the alleyway who opens up his raincoat and, and shows, you know, the, uh, the, the, the yeah. deck of cards that perhaps you don't want to show your parents. He opens up his suitcase and says, I can get you Ben Hecht's perfidy, right? I can get you, you know, all the information that you want. And, and he sort of saw himself as a, as a jolly agent. Of listen, yeah, my show was what was mildly entertaining. Satmer is very powerful, and and the and the Satmer of uh, Zechotzadik was clearly uh, an articulator of the theology that you were talking about. And uh, to be honest, it's just fear. It's fear. It's heresy. okay. Okay, but to be honest, to answer your point. The Sabarov in his own mind had a, a way to understand this. And of course, that there's the Koach of the Sitra Achra, that the victories and other things, it's all there to test our. Wouldn't you prefer to live in a world where the Sitra Achra is responsible for the Holocaust? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, right. it's, and it's it's Hashkach and Israel. You know what? I'll, I'll tell you. Maybe, what, maybe the Holocaust was the Sitra Achra. Because, like, comparing the two things, six million Jews dying, establish the state of Israel. I'm more inclined to believe yeah. Sitra on the Holocaust lecture. <laughs> I don't know why. It's a right, wacky right, thing. Right. But Sitra Achra seems to fit more with the Holocaust. Yeah, I guess if your idea of the Sitra Achra is like the unleashed of the devilish power of of of, of like Loki from the Marvel movies, okay, right. I, I sort of see what you're saying. But I think the Satmarov honestly was saying that when there is such an Onish, it has there has to be a din for it. 
again, I am not as someone who lost all his close relatives in the Holocaust. I do not subscribe to it, but I can see that there was a need to. You know, I want to say something. You know, when the Gemara discusses why the Churban happened, mm-hmm. right? So what do they come up with? Right. They come up with a this, number of different answers. Right. But I think the most well known is Kamsa Bar Kamsa, where the rabbis were to blame. You know, for standing by and seeing a Jew being expelled from a party, not doing anything, for how they mishandled the the mumen inflicted carbon, they took the guilt upon themselves. Right? That's how rabbis who are believers in God conduct themselves, not heretics, right? And the idea that you have this calamity of the worst kind, the worst single worst. You know, I mean, you know, you can debate what's worse, the Chorban or the Holocaust, but certainly that's the debate. And to say it's somebody else's fault, it's the Tzioyinim's fault, really? Rabbis never spoke like that before. Rabbis always took responsibility upon their own shoulders. Yeah, look, I I, I think it's a little more subtle than what you're saying. I think it isn't just the Tzioyinim. I think he saw... From the time of the Enlightenment, the Hisbolus of the Jews, he just saw Zionism as the most pernicious manifestation of uh, of assimilation. And let me just let me just say what his point is. I'm not. I don't agree with it, despite the love I have for what the Sabbarov did in America. But what he says is is that unlike you know, let's say uh, the idea that was the part of the Hamburg Temple which was, let's just be as much like them as possible, and we'll just, you know, we'll call ourselves Jews, but our our mode right. of this, this was something that was Jewish, but had a jettisoned God. And therefore, it, it had a Hebrew language, it had all the the elements of, 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 of Jewish life cutting out a God who wants us to fulfill his will consistently. I'm not talking about Rav Reines and Mizrahi. But 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 that is what why the Satmarov and others like the Munkacher and others felt that this was. No, a- I mean the, pe- the the people who led the anti-Zionist movement amongst the religious Jews before World War II were uh, Lubavitch and Satmar, and in some ways Lubavitch was even more uh, vocal and vociferous against Zionism than Satmar. It was Chabad and Satmar were were at least equally um, opposed to Zionism. Uh, for fundraising purposes, Chabad doesn't talk about that too much, but uh, but they haven't abandoned their theology. They believe the creation of the state of Israel was a sin. And, and part of it, again, is because of the allure and power that it has. I think most even most people who threw off their their Jewish identity, whether it was Mendelssohn's grandchildren or whoever it was, yeah, yeah. Um, they basically saw that it was paper thin, the Judaism that was being offered to them, and they said, yeah, we might as well live like a God. I can't argue the fact that it would be in sync with long history of Jewish thought on these matters to proclaim that the punishment that occur in this world are linked to a lack of religiosity. But to ascribe it particularly to Zionism is the inverse of logic. I mean, what does he write? He says, yeah, the Holocaust was an Einish for not being a Zionist, which at yeah. least has the advantage of some logic, because had everyone been a Zionist and moved to Israel, many less would have died. Uh, so at least there's a logic to that. I personally yeah. think it's the height of arrogance and hubris to propose a reason for the Holocaust. I think it's insane. Uh, well, you know, again, I think 
uh, clear-headed thinkers, sociologists, historians will could possibly trace, and I'm just I'm playing Satmar advocate here, could possibly trace a connection. And and I but you see it in, in some way, just give me a second here, with the Lewinbloom. You have Lewinbloom who goes from being, you know, a a a like a like a dyed in the wool Farbrenta Maskil to one of the leaders of Chovetzion without in any way, shape, or form, taking on any new mitzvah or Torah mitzvahs. And, and we know that that did occur, whether it was Pinsker, Lewinblum, maybe even in a certain way Herzl as well, that they decided, yeah, and, 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 and it was interesting. Again, Rav Cook and others felt that that hysteris will lead to acceptance of God, because you can't have a desire for the land and this place without Despite all your, like, me thinks you protest too much. That's what Rav Kook believed in. So Rav Kook, Rav believed in. He believed that even though in their conscious minds, they were saying, I don't want God. I just want a place to save my people with my tradition. Meaning the fact is we, we have a certain ethnicity and a certain belonging, a certain bond. They didn't know how to say DNA then. Rav Kook believed that must be the Hisaurus of Kedusha. You always get most excited by the thing that that you know gets under your craw the most, and therefore, you know they they realize the Satmarov and the Munkatra and the Lubavitcher. Uh, we're talking about the Rebbe Rashab, the, not the last Rebbe who died, and not his father-in-law, but his father, the Rebbe Rashab. The Rebbe Rashab was the one who wrote the letter against Zionism, which is you can find it anywhere. They saw that was a powerful enemy that they couldn't just say it's paper thin. It had so much muscle, so much sinew. And the incredible thing, as you know, knowing history was, you had young people willing to risk their lives and die, even at the end of the 19th century, to move to Eretz Yisrael, to live under conditions that were were terribly unhygienic, that, and, and, and yet this, to, to take their shirts off and dig ditches and create uh, streets and, and roads and towns, it was shocking to see that, and I think that's the reason why the counteroffensive they used all the invective they could. Now, I think this is a very great parallel to what we have here in the United States now between the left and the right, because we know our our president, or as um, as Ben Shapiro says, the corpse <laughs> declared himself uh, for re-election. As I didn't see the the clip, but I heard it. And basically he's saying, we need to stop MAGA. We need to stop that evil. We we need to stop this thing that threatens our freedom. That's what it means to be a human being, to be free. And I have to finish the job. I have to go out there and, and slay the dragon completely. Um, and again, those these, ap- like you say, apocalyptic, incredible terms. January 6th was the almost the end of the government. And I've got, I'm the one who can fight them. That's what's happening. That's what the battle lines are. Don't you laugh along uh, with, with the listen, other cynics? Listen, nobody needs Donald Trump more than Joe Biden. That's right. And he needs to talk about January 6th. Uh, he has very low approval ratings himself. Majority of Democrats don't want him to run again. But he knows one thing. His ticket back to power is continuing to inflate Donald Trump as a clear and present danger to the United States of America. 
you have made this point here, and I think everyone realizes that that uh, he needs he can always just point to the way he beat him up before. Why? What's going on with Biden? You, you have a pretty positive sense about him. He said earlier that he might just be a bridge president. I think the following. I think that had the midterm elections gone differently, we might have seen an alternative rise up in the Democratic Party. I'm not saying Biden would have stepped aside, but Biden certainly would have faced a challenge from inside the party. Uh, once the midterms went over, much better than expected for the Democrats, given that the abortion agenda uh, energized the Democratic base in ways that not everyone anticipated. So Biden uh, understands that he can win and he just wants to, he wants it again and that's it. And but the only way he can win is if he's facing Donald Trump. And why does he, why, why does he, does he just want this job for all the, for all the, it's a, hell of a lot more fun taking Marine one than the, <laughs> okay. than the damn track train. <laughs> there was some uh, talk that maybe he would, he doesn't need to, if it's Trump, but there was some talk that maybe he would add a different running mate other than that's not going to happen. He can't, if, if, if it was a white male, he could get rid of him, but with a black female, he can't get rid of her. Listen, he's an old guy. There's a lot can happen to you now on election day. If his vice president was considered more formidable, uh, there might have been pressure for him to step aside so that his successor could serve, you know, could serve. But there's no pressure to step aside for Kamala. Nobody wants Kamala. Everyone, her weaknesses were on display for all to see. So Biden is really lucky. Nobody wants his vice president. Uh, he's viewed as one of the, as a Democrat who can beat Donald Trump. They're going to continue to inflate Donald Trump. Uh, the, uh, indictments against him so far I haven't hurt him. If anything, it's energized his people. DeSantis had a few stumbles in the last couple of weeks. DeSantis doesn't maybe look as good as he did a couple of months ago. Isn't it funny that the, um, the challenges to Biden, you know, I, I heard about it. It, it came across my phone as a big news. RFK announces. Um, yes. Yeah. It, it, again, we both remember, you know, Bobby Kennedy. RFK was a hope. RFK was was someone who, again, we didn't know about everything he did with Roy Cohen and the hatchet jobs he was doing as attorney general. But it's it's interesting that the Kennedy mystique is gone. RFK means nothing. They they label him a mishugano, an anti-vaxer. Um, uh, do, do, is, is this just a way for him to make some money so he could sell another book? I think what the Democrats have to worry about is given that all the margins are so narrow in the battleground states that if RFK stays in after losing Democratic primaries and runs as a third-party candidate, I mean, you know, uh, you can argue that it was the third party candidates in Michigan that put Trump into power in 2016. There's a third party candidate in Michigan uh, on the left. A third party candidate can mess things up. And by the way, if DeSantis wins the Republican primaries, again, hard to uh, imagine that. But let's, let's say DeSantis wins the Republican primaries and Trump says he's still running. That dooms the Republicans in, 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 with absolute certainty. So. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things can happen, but uh, the fact that Biden is is completely unchallenged within the Democratic Party, he, he's not Ted Kennedy, you know, challenging uh, Jimmy Carter uh, after Carter's first term. Uh, it's not we're not going to see a situation where uh, 
you know, where, where people challenged LBJ. In fact, Gene and, McCarthy. It was Gene McCarthy who actually. Yeah, you're not, not going to see that. And uh, uh, you're not going to see a challenge to, to Biden. And the Democrats seem to be betting all their money on an old horse. Yeah, it's, it's definitely, it definitely makes us look, I think, very strange in the eyes of European governments where young, vibrant leaders, whether it's in France uh, or in Germany or other yeah. places, or, or even, you know, Japan and China. So it, it, I, I think it's, you know, somebody I mean, can hardly open his mouth without, unless he has a script in front of him, without, without putting his foot in his mouth. I mean, it's a, uh, it's embarrassing. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. You know, it's interesting as I was, you know, flipping through my podcast, so to speak, listening to our competition. Uh, I saw that a, a larger thing was even made of Biden's declaration of these of of the prime Fox News anchor Tucker Carlson. Seven years he sat in that chair, and most recently, I think he uh, got a hold of security tape that indicated that January 6th was not this wild riot where, uh, you know, they were just, you know, they were almost lynching people, but that it was a very, uh, if you look at it, even in stop motion camera, that it was, it was clearly not as aggressive and crazy as people thought the police were leading people around. And now Tucker Carlson, who is the voice for many people of, the the right wing and the the people who, who who want to take the country back from the woke craziness. Tucker Carlson has now been fired, or at least he's part ways, and he can't use his email. He's not able to to do anything, and they are going to reach a settlement and get rid of him. That was the main story on almost all the the feeds. How, how do you understand that? That that's more important to hear than the fact that we have. Uh, uh, it's I, honestly, talk, I mean, it's just so remarkable when you step back from this and remember the last 20, 30 years when wild conspiracy theories used to be the domain of the left, right? Oliver Stone, Michael Moore, all these wackos on the left claiming that we're all victims of some grand hidden conspiracy. Now you have Taco Carlson claiming that a guy named Ray Epps is an FBI plant who, who you know, who was an agent provoc- provocateur in the January 6th uh, riots. Uh, everything is a conspiracy. Uh, you know, everything is a hidden hand. There's a, he even gave credence to the great replacement theory. You, you know, it's, it's the paranoid style in American politics, one person once put it, which used to be a left-wing thing. It was the left claiming great conspiracies. Yeah, but 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 it's 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 fascinating that a, a media person carries more clout. I mean, we saw this with Rush Limbaugh. You might even say with Howard Stern in certain ways. But the fact that that his take getting out of of of, of losing his job is somehow the story on every single network. Um, and I think uh, what people are forgetting is it's not really Tucker. It's the Fo- it's Fox News. We, whoever they whatever talented face they put on at eight o'clock or. Nine o'clock at night, we'll, you know, we'll enjoy similar ratings and similar clout. Uh, Fox News has a lock on that, on that audience. Because there are, because there isn't, there isn't that many other places to go. We're still talking about 45 to 50 percent of, of, of America. Which is which is not as splintered as the well. Again, how many people actually view these shows? Is about two and a half, three million. But again, it has widespread viewership on other platforms. But um, 
Well, well look, Trump got 72 million votes, right? right? 72 million votes. So there's the, so if you want to say that Fox News was the repository for 72 million uh, voters and maybe more, that's a lot of America. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, listen, Dev, when Fox News was created, it, it, did, it did fill a void in, in the media landscape. Uh, the media is dominated by people on the left. And, and Fox News certainly did that. But again, this, this, this move into this conspiracy theories and complete wackiness. And we now know from the memos that were disclosed, uh, because of discovery process in the, uh, uh, in the recent, recently settled lawsuit that you had people going on the air on Fox News who knew they were lying, who behind closed doors were calling Trump crazy. We're calling people like Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell lunatics, and yet mouthing their lies uh, at worst, and and you know, and at best, providing a platform for those lies. So, you know, that certainly hurts their credibility. I, I think part of what has happened, and I guess this could lead us to our last topic, is that news outlets in in our days when we were growing up were networks that were sponsored by you know Benson and Hedges or Johnson Wax today these networks are are paid for by people who these are the subscribers subscribers subscribe for content and you see this in in the newspapers as well the new york times that you loved so much that that sunday edition that you said but but it was full of ads from the various companies and corporations and stores, Fox News is the subscribers want it, and yeah. I think therefore we they need to answer to well, the subscribers. Great spon- corporate sponsors like My Pillow, <laughs> and okay, and he also I think has been. Uh, by the way, I happen to like My Pillow. I think those. I don't pillows- even know what it is. Okay, well, first of all, how can I know it? It's your pillow. <laughs> my, my point is, is that. I, I think you you have a you have a niche. It's not a niche audience, but the audience pays for it, and therefore they demand that the program give voice to what they're about. And I think that's true on the left as well. I think it's true that that it, one of the people say there's no news anymore; it's all opinions. But part of it is the consumer has changed, uh, especially you know when you talk about paying for something and streaming. Um, and 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 it's it's, it's with, with cable is also has been uh, as pretty much evaporated for many people and you you buy the streaming you you pay for the streaming network that you want uh, whether it's Disney Plus or Apple Plus or HBO or Showtime or what have you so that's it my friends we'll catch you hopefully next week and watch what you're streaming be well take care thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 